Here at Hip Radio, we celebrate women every day, sharing the stories that empower women to say yes, no, and not right now, so they can live without fear and with the independence that preserves their birthrights of freedom. This year, International Women's Day is asking everyone to imagine a gender equal world, a world free of bias, stereotypes, and discrimination. A world that's diverse, equitable and inclusive. And a world where difference is valued and celebrated. And I'd like to add a world where respect and kindness are the foundations. Together we can forge women's equality and collectively we can all break the bias. A few weeks ago I was introduced to Bron Williams she is the biased specialist based in Melbourne, who through her own lived experience, identified her own biased thoughts and beliefs, and now works with people and businesses to help them make bias conscious. As a speaker, educator, and media commentator in this space, she helps them develop targeted strategies to drive successful growth and change. Women have long been subjected to bias. Then layer it with being married, having children, working part-time, being divorced, being single, being successful, being young or old, or from another country, and these labels will instantly create an image of who these women are in your mind. So when it's coupled with the word bitch or slut, often by the opinions of others, we find ourselves making unfair judgments. What I love about this interview hits home around six minutes and 20 seconds. When Bron explains when difference is felt as a threat. And I really felt that. So if you've ever wondered how life events, your environment, education or experience may be impacting on your unconscious bias, in this conversation, Bron will help you identify how it shows up and the impact it has on those that the bias is directed towards. I hope together, by extending a generosity of thought and actively being more inclusive in our day-to-day, -day, we can create the change we want to see. I love that you're a bias specialist. I think that's awesome. Thank you. I started calling myself the bias expert and I thought, that means I know everything. No, I don't know everything. So I just changed one word. And it, yeah, it, it, um, it is a unique, and I, it's actually now my, um, my business name. So it's good to be able to have that definitely there. How about we start with telling me what a bias specialist does or what the bias is that you're targeting or focusing on? Certainly. My tagline is making bias conscious. And that's because bias is generally unconscious. It sits below the um, surface, our conscious surface of, of our thoughts and influences our decision-making and our relationships. Bias uh, starts in childhood. So literally from the moment we're born, we're absorbing messages from our parents our family, our siblings, school, the media, the sport club, that's telling us what's right, what's helpful, who to trust, who to dismiss, 
and we are absorbing all of these um, pieces of information long before we have any cognitive ability to make um, a, a choice about whether we agree with that information or not. So we've got, we do have these biases. It's important to know though that bias is simply part of the way that we think. One of my goals is to normalise the conversation around bias, to take away any sense of judgement, you know, finger pointing, um, any sense of blame or guilt or shame to do um, with bias because it's, it's a human problem. It's part of the human condition and so it's something that doesn't matter your age, your race, your gender, we all have biases. But by making bias conscious, by be developing our awareness of it, we can start to see which biases are unhelpful and that we would like to change the way we think about a particular thing. Now, I want to give you a, a funny little example from my childhood. Um, I was brought up in a very conservative Christian household, a Protestant household. And um, both my sister and I wanted to get our ears pierced. And my mother said to, to me when I asked about this, only Catholic girls get their ears pierced which, of course, made no real sense to me, um, didn't worry me. But for my mother, that was a very definite divide um, in her thinking that having earrings represented being Catholic and she was staunchly a Protestant. Um, so very, very simple things like that. I don't think that my mother hated Catholics or anything like that, but she'd been raised that, you know, being Protestant was the right thing to do and, you know, Catholics were well, these odd, odd peoples. So bias can turn up in very, very simple ways like that, but then obviously it turns and up and manifests in some really serious ways like racism, like gender inequity, you know, discrimination over, um, over gender and gender identity, dis disability uh, discrimination, also manifests in terms of, different forms of abuse, bullying and harassment, micromanagement, whole lots of ways in which the, we privilege a particular way of thinking or a group of people over against another way of thinking or another great group of people and usually to the detriment of that other group. And so what do I do? I talk with people about bias, companies help them, grow their awareness of what it looks like, how it turns up and what we can do about it. So I think it's a great place to start and just ask, where does it go from opinion to judgment? Like when does it cross over from, you know, respecting another person's way of thinking? Yeah. Oh, that's a great question because we all have opinions and our opinions also are shaped by our life experiences and, you know, what we consider to be normal and right. And you can have an opinion, but when you classify or judge someone based on that opinion, when you don't actually know the situation, that's where it's tipped over. So I might have had, this is hypothetical, I might have had a bad experience with someone from a particular racial group. Now, my opinion, if I allow that one incident to colour my thinking about that whole racial group, that is now a bias. I formed a judgment 
of a racial group. Now, that it may not go any further than an opinion, but it will probably leak out in the way I speak to people like that if I'm in a position where um, I'm looking at, say, in a workplace of hiring someone and I have two candidates and one is of that racial group and rather than another, if I've had a poor experience with someone from a particular racial group and that might have been a legitimate experience in which I felt let down or um, maybe treated poorly, I then probably, most human beings, we tend to then classify the whole group of people. We are less likely to trust people. We have an opinion about that group. Now, you can hold that opinion, but of course our opinions don't just stay in our head. They leak out in terms of um, the things that we might say, just the casual comments about people or about a particular nationality. Or we might, if we're in a position in a company where we are part of hiring people or um, having, you know, being part of the promotions process where we might um, pass over someone of that racial group, not because they're not a good candidate, but because our past experience has led us to have an opinion of that racial group. So we've allowed our bias towards that racial group based solely on one situation to then colour the way that we actually behave. And that's where we have to, building awareness of our biases helps us see that and then we have to be intentional in that because we can't help feeling that we've been let down by the person initially, but we do have the choice about whether do I then apply that opinion to everybody in that group. I want to ask you about um, assumptions because I think that plays a huge part in bias and the the use of language. So can you talk to what the impact is of people assuming certain things because they might read or they might see certain words that they assume are associated or allocated to that particular group? What impact does that have on the person? So um, in... A recent conversation, um, the, a discussion was happening around a particular television show that myself and another person were discussing and the person, this other person was a man and he referenced the particular character who had, as a journalist, had slept with another character in the show to gain some information. His commentary as your typical white Australian bloke who's, you know, in his, you know, later years, in his 60s, said, ah, she was a slut. Well, in the past, I probably would have let that slide or thought, yes, you know, she's a woman of loose morals, (laughs) given my very conservative Christian upbringing. But now it's like, no, I cannot let that rest. And I, I, I said, why does she get to be called a slut? She's using sex to gain something that she wants. You know, she wasn't abusing the guy. He was quite happy to go to bed with her. Why does a woman get slut-shamed? Whereas a bloke who does exactly the same thing, and don't tell me men don't use sex to get what they want, 
um, as part of, you know, being, being a human being. But, um, you know, a guy's called a stud. There's something wonderful about this. And what we, we're doing is by using the word slut, we're saying that that person is morally void, that those actions and that word takes away any sense of moral genuineness that, that a woman has. And so there's an assumption, going back to assumptions, there's an assumption that if a woman sleeps with men for purposes other than monogamy, whatever that looks like. Like pleasure. Then, <laughs> yes, that's right, like pleasure. Um, that they are somehow morally void. Whereas if a man does exactly the same thing, and hello, on the whole, we talk, if we talk about heterosexual relationships, it takes a man, it takes a woman, um, can't do it on your own. You know, um, you've just, but a man is seen as fulfilling his manly role. He's a stud. He's, you know, he's, he's the stallion. So I, I had to call it out. And as, as the conversation went on in the group of people, another man, similar age group, said, but Bron, that's just the way it is. And I said, well, it doesn't have to be. Why does it have to be? And then later in, in the day, an, an older man in his um, early 70s just sidled up to me and said, Thank you for saying that. He said, we say terrible things about women, don't we? Now, he wouldn't join in the conversation, but he was really pleased that I called it out. And, and I think at the moment women have to call it out because on the whole men won't yet because it's like I don't want to judge the man who initially called this character a slut because that's his language, that's the culture in which he grew up with it. Typical white Australian male, that's very typical. But it's an unthinking comment. And, you know, because I'm aware of these biases, I, I just have to call it out. Now, I can't let it slide. And he may, I'm not sure that I've convinced him, but if we can call things out and get people to justify why they use the language that they do, I think sometimes people go, without sort of adding any judgment, like saying this person is a bad person saying this. This is just their language. It's what they've been used to saying and they haven't given it any thought. We can call it out and say, well, tell me why you do, why are you doing that? Why do you use that word for this person and not for this person? Why are you judging this person and not that person? Then you've actually, you provide space for people to think for themselves about the language that they use. So have you got a, a one great statement um, that women in particular can use that is, you know, not offensive for men but also holds them accountable for the way that they speak um, or the language that they do use? The key thing I would ask, say is to ask, ask a question because questions open up space for conversation. There's generally no judgment in a question. See, my question in this was why, do you, why are you using this word? for that person and you know and the response was well that's just but that's just what she is and I asked again but why <laughs> you know and then I qualified it so I think asking a question that's that's a non-threatening generally a non-threatening way to get people to start thinking because often the language is just unthinking it's not meant to be mean and nasty but it's unthinking 
And are you finding that the men that you're speaking with, are they are they thinking about it now? Are they, are they getting more conscious about um, the words that they use? Yeah, little bit by little bit. And I think that's the important thing. Like our biases have been with us since childhood. They're unquestioned most of the time. And any good change, lasting change is incremental, bit by bit. Like we grow slowly. We grow as a human being slowly. Changing our language, changing our thinking patterns takes time. And so I think those of us who know and want to educate, we have to allow people to change in their own pace as well because by insisting that someone jump from point A to point Z in one step, like that's unrealistic and unhelpful and people resist doing that. But if we say, can you move from A to B, they go, oh, I think I can do that. So I think that's really important for us as well. And, and I know I look back over, you know, the decades of my life and I look at where we are now and think we've still got such a long way to go, particularly with women and racism and ageism and a whole lot of things. And yet when I look back to the early 1950s when my mum got married, she had to leave the Commonwealth Bank because she was now a married woman. Mm. So, you know, in just outside of my lifetime, we've made huge changes and no woman these days would even consider leaving the workforce because they got married, but that was norm for my mum's generation. So we have made huge progress. We still got a long way to go, but I've just got to keep doing it a bit at a time. That's fabulous. Now I want to ask you about some of the great achievements that you've you've made in your career and, and doing this type of work. If you want to give us some examples. Well, one of my most... One of the most difficult things I've ever done, one of the best things, I go back to the, you know, that lovely line from A Tale of Cities, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, was when I worked on Nauru uh, with asylum seekers. Um, the Salvation Army was the first group that uh, provided welfare services on Nauru and Manus Island back in 2012 and I was a Salvation Army officer at the time and when the uh, email came around saying we want some volunteers, I put my hand up, not because I had this burning desire to work in the tropics or to work with refugees, but I couldn't think of any reason why not to. And so that, um, that decision changed the trajectory of my life. And it would because it was while working on Nauru that I was first confronted with my own latent racism, largely from growing up in, you know, white, monocultural, conservative, Bible Belt area of Sydney, mixing with people who looked like me, sounded like me, thought like me, um, apart from the, uh, them nasty Catholics. Um, you know, <laughs> so, it, you know, that was the only difference, really, was between Catholics and Protestants. And here I was, and particularly in 2012, being confronted with, I was, there were only men, all varying shades of brown and black, speaking all these languages that I didn't understand, hello, I only spoke English, and I knew that, you know, they came from mostly Muslim backgrounds. All of that was challenging for me. I had these physical reactions. My shoulders were tense. My stomach was churning. And I, as I thought about that, I thought, actually, I feel afraid. And I couldn't understand really why because, you know, there were security guards everywhere 
I was physically safe and I had to think through, well, why was I feeling afraid? And I realised it was because somewhere along the line I'd been taught the difference was a threat. You know, hello, if you can't get your ears pierced as a Protestant because only Catholics get their ears pierced, there's an unspoken thing there that difference, something different is wrong or it's threatening to our way of doing things. And so part of my journey in that was to flip that on its head, so to go from difference being a threat to seeing difference as an asset. And then as I went on working um, there, because I started I went first in November 2012 and finished up um, in February 2014. Part of that time, I was also aware of the attitudes of the white expats to the Nauruan people who were particularly part of their teams. There was this sense of dismissing their ways of thinking or their ideas because, you know, hello, university-educated, first-world country, seen a bit of the world, Surely I would know better than people who'd lived on a little tiny island in the middle of the Pacific um, and some of whom didn't speak English and who only had a high school education. And as I became aware of this, I actually sat down with Fatima, who headed up the team with the Salvation Army, and said this is what um, I was noticing. And she said, oh, we know that about you guys, but we just accept it. Now, that floored me. Because I thought, oh, this is so obvious. And I hadn't even heard about the term white privilege at that stage. But, of course, once you start digging, you find these things and I realised that's what it was. It was white privilege. And I had to... Now, both my racism and my white privilege were not something that I went looking for, wasn't something I asked for, I didn't mean this. This wasn't something intentional on my part, but it was something that developed in me because of who I am, because of the colour of my skin and the way I was raised. I didn't particularly like it. I don't particularly like it. But now that I know, I get a choice as to what do I do with it. And I've actually changed that, obviously changed that now and turned it into my, my business of helping other people see the things that, is, that are hard to see. So that's, I, in many ways, I think this is the greatest um, achievement of my life and this is the thing I'm put here on the earth to do. I've often thought that in the last third of life, and that's where I'm at, I'm 66 this year, we get to do that one thing that we put on the earth to do because we've got some wisdom. You know, we're not worried about children. You know, we're, we're probably as in the most stable place of our life and that's what I see. You know, I'm going to give the next 25 or 30 years to and as part of that, and this excites me so much, is I've just been accepted as a doctoral candidate with Charles Sturt University. And so I'm starting my <laughs> doctoral journey. That's fabulous. At connection between bias and shame. And I'm going to do it through a theological lens because that's my background. And like it or not, the Christian church and Christian thinking has had, had a huge impact on Western thought whether you believe that stuff or not is actually irrelevant because the thinking is there, it impacts us so much. And so I'm going to go on a, an exploratory journey and see what I find. Well, I don't think you'll have any problems finding anyone who doesn't suffer from shame. <laughs> Plenty of candidates. Absolutely. All biased. All biased. So, yeah. Um, 
But I did want to I did want to sum up by saying I think when I was reading about you and I was googling, um, the thing that came up for me about your attitude was that you had this huge generosity of thought for people, and I just wanted to see what your final words would be about that because you you trigger something when I was reading going that's me that I I like to think that I don't know everything um, but I certainly don't know everything that everyone's going through and I think that's really important for people to take on board when they're trying to rationalize judge sort of sort things out in their own head about what's going on in the world but we just don't know and we're not privileged to be told everything either because we're not we might not be in their circle so what what do you say about that generosity of thought like is that something that you've cultivated over time or is it something you think you've already had instead of instilled in you look I think I think part of it is it's part of who I am Um, I can remember back in the in a previous life when I was training to be a teacher because that's my I've got an educational background Um, I can remember being part of a discussion class and someone saying to me oh Bronna I don't want to ever get into an argument with you because you see both sides (laughs) so I think even way back you know in my early 20s I had this capacity to see things other than myself. And, you know, I'll give you a funny little example. When I was 12 was the first time I started to question why I couldn't be inside someone else's head, why I was limited only to my body. So I think even in those days I I understood that people think differently, that I can only see myself but that I wanted to be able to understand. Um, other people so I think it's always been there but certainly in the last well you know as we go through life we all have our experiences I divorced in my mid-50s and as a conservative Christian that's a real no-no so that you know I I had to um, confront a lot of the expectations the shoulds the must-haves all of those sorts of things about how I was raised um and then doing this whole journey with confronting my own biases and the time that it takes to change, I think I just try to transfer that to other people. Like, you know, it's taken me decades to get to where I am Mm. um, and to then be generous with other people. Does that mean I don't ever get angry with or frustrated with other people? Absolutely not, you know, and there are certain people in our political life, for whom I have very little time, shall I say, um, that annoy me because I've had interactions with them. Actually, they came to Nauru. Anyway, anyway go there. Um, you can cut that bit out. Uh, but, yeah. I'll just send it down the road. I'm um, just, yeah, so I'm normal. Yeah, so I'm normal. But, yeah, I suppose I do try and have that generosity of thought I probably would never have expressed it that way. So thank you. I, I love that feedback. Well, you can have that one because um, I think it is quite infectious too. I think it inspires people to to have that and go, oh, that's right, I don't actually know what's going on in your life. And um, but the last one I wanted to discuss with you, it's just sort of come to my head, but what does entitlement, how is that related to bias? Yeah, um, you know, entitlement is very much linked up with um with what privilege? Now, entitlement. This this again is my understanding of it. I'm trying to think. I can't think of the person's name, but um, a researcher in the US has said that 
happen. White people have this unconscious backpack of entitlements that, in a sense, they're born with. And I loved that idea that I, as a white woman, I, and I, this came to the fore last year as I was supporting a good friend who is um, a Sri Lankan um, working here, you know, she's an Australian citizen, but just she came up against some gendered and racist discrimination in her workplace, which resulted in, um, you know, um, disciplinary action that was totally unfair. But I would never have faced that as a white woman in that organisation. And I had, had worked with in that organisation with her at one stage. I would never have faced that. And I firmly believe that she faced it purely because she had, was dark-skinned. And... But if I was also white-skinned and a male, I would have absolutely not faced the situation that we are, is, she was in. So I think we entitlement is, is a gift to people. We are gifted with that entitlement, but we need to learn to be aware of it because we get privileges that other people don't. And I, <clears throat> I have to learn to look for those in myself because up until a few years ago, I didn't know that that existed. And so I need to become more aware of it. But as, a, you know, another white woman said in a conversation earlier in the week as she was talking with people, a woman of colour, she said, let me use my entitlement to support you. And I think... I can't do away with my white privilege, but I can work intentionally to not allow it for me to get things unfairly where I can, but also to use it where I can to support people who don't naturally have the same entitlements. I absolutely love that. Oh, that makes me that makes me tear up because I think that that's what we are supposed to do. We are supposed to create space for them so that they're seen and heard and validated, mm. and their experience is real. Because we will never go through that um, because of who no. we are. So, no. well, well, Bron, you know what? It has been lovely. How do people get in touch with you? Well, best way is at info at bronwilliams.com. That's my email address. Stalk me on LinkedIn. I'm Ron Williams, the bias specialist. All you have to do is Google. That's what I do. That was, and you're everywhere. And I just think what you're doing is incredible. It's paving an amazing path um, for others, especially women, especially at this time. And you know, and following on from that Me Too movement, I think um, harassment, intimidation, assault upon like violence against women, all of that will eventually come to an end if we can um, just embrace some of what you are trying to put out there. Yeah, thank you. Yes, got to keep at it, <laughs> step by step. Well, thank you very much. It's a very large elephant, so I'm going to eat him a little bit at time. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Bron, and um, I'm going to put all the details into the show notes and you can reach out to Bron. You can um, see her on LinkedIn. She's doing some amazing work. All right, and we'll speak to you again soon. Okay, thanks, Pip. It's been great. I want to thank Bron Williams for her time and insight. Her lived experience is the collective wisdom. We here at Pip Radio are leaving as a legacy for our younger generations to hear and feel 
so they find the courage to be who they want to be. This year's International Women's Day episode is brought to you by Pip Radio in association with the Sutherland Shire Podcast Station.